Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. His third time is the charm remains to be seen. He's back a third time on this podcast. Please welcome Lindsay Powell, who has written Germanicus, who we spoke about in the first episode he was on. And of course, Marcus Agrippa, which is actually one year old, which is crazy because it felt like yesterday since we recorded that episode. And a few of the, both of these we are going to mention in this episode, which we are going to talk about the Julio-Claudian dynasty. But we are not going too much into both Germanicus or Agrippa because we have a lot of stuff to talk about today. And But you can check out the previous episode that we made. But before we go into the podcast, I want to do something different because we actually got our first Canadian review by Chels31995, says... I love this podcast. I love the host of this podcast. He's such a good interviewer. Always have an understanding of history subject and the guest as well. The questions that he asked make me the interview thorough. I always learn something new from each episode, even as if it's a topic I already know well. Thank you so much to the creator for the podcast. It's clear that so much work goes into making this. And thank you, Chels1995, for that review. Um, I do want people to write reviews like this, or if you don't like the review, please do write, write about that as well, but I prefer reviews like I just read, but, you know, write what you want to write, and I might, might read up your review as well on this podcast. I recommend if you are listening on Apple Podcast, which I know there are quite a few who do, I highly recommend re- writing a review for the podcast. That would help us out a lot, and I try to read your review as well. I'm sorry for talking a little bit faster than right now, but we've got a lot to talk about. So let's just get into it, Lindsay. But first, I want to ask, how much do you think about the Roman Empire? Oh, in short, a lot. Um, but I'm unusual, right? I, I, I'm a writer, I'm a historian, uh, and, and you've already mentioned two of my books, and those each took about two going on three years to write. So, you know, there's that to think about. I'm also the news editor for Ancient History and Ancient Warfare magazines, of which Romans sort of play a part. So um, I'm always on the lookout for material, always on the lookout for uh, um, research material and stories. And, um, you know, I mean, that makes me a very unusual creature, I think, but a lot. And you recently published a new book as well, I believe, haven't you? Um, Yes, I'm right in the middle of writing a book about the Emperor Tiberius, uh, which is um, the... The essential person to complete my series, having written about Marcus Agrippa, about Germanicus, about uh, Drusus the Elder, and about uh, Augustus and, and his great cohort of generals. 
Um, he is a person that fascinates me endlessly, and he's the man that is in every one of those other books. But now it's his turn to have the spotlight, and he gets sent to stage. So it's it's been uh, occupying my mind for the, at least the last eighteen months. It's a serious project, and because he's such an interesting man, and because there's so much material, and the opinion is so divided about him. Um, the more I delve into it, the more I find, and therefore it seems to take even longer to write. So I, I, I've been working on this uh, for a while, and in fact, uh, it's 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 just fascinating, really, uh, to, to to in a sense inhabit the body of someone else through other people's writings of him. And in all these cases, I mean, we don't have anything that survives written by the man that I'm writing about, which is so tragic. But uh, we have to rely everybody on every use of um, third party tellings about these people but so often that is the way in ancient history and um, let's begin we talked a little bit about this before we began the recording but the you let's begin with the name that they are known for the julio claudian dancing with the cross as you know as it traced with a few like i don't think the platform to mention for the plantagenet for example they didn't call themselves the plantagenet and the same is true with the julio claudian dynasty they did not call Himself to Julia Claudian. So when did they, when did we start calling them the Julia Claudian dynasty? Yeah, Julia Claudian is a made-up name, really. It's a historiographical term, um, as in so much as you've just said. I mean, people people will talk about a, a group in order to distinguish them from another group, and in the telling of the story of the different groups, you want to have sort of markers to be able to say these are not those. Um, it, 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 it tries to, in the name Julio-Claudian, take two family clans, if you will. The Romans called them Gens, G-E-N-S. So there's Gens Julia, which actually then refers back through to the Julian line, i.e. Julius Caesar. And then there's the Gens Claudia, the Claudian line, which really goes back through Livia, which is uh, the, the wife of Augustus. And curiously, she never had any children by him. So it's, it's kind of already strange. So, so if you can think of it this way, um, we, we've actually got a name which describes a large family, the House of Augustus, by virtue of two clans. But actually, when you look at the family tree and you start looking at their names, they preserve other against Gentes in them. So, for example, the one obvious name that's not in there is the Gens Ripsania. So, for example, Marcus Agrippa was was a member of the Gens Vipsania. He he preferred not to use the name Vipsania. So he actually made a point to, to to drop it completely, and sometimes was ridiculed for it. But that was his personal choice. But every time you see an Agrippina, and there are always several of those within the family, that is a daughter of Marcus Agrippa, and they marry into this family. So you know that that's one thing to think about. Then the other one is Gens Antonia which is the family of Marcus Antonius. And that has that has tentacles going into this family. And then finally, of course, this gets Octavia, which is Octavian's family, who he, is a man who becomes Augustus. So in fact, when you look at this, by just taking the name Julia Claudian, we're actually missing out some important strands of the other people in this family. But the, the key thing to know is that they thought of themselves as Caesares, the Caesars, and it's as simple as, for example, all the inscriptions have the name Caesar in them at some point in the name structure. And Suetonius calls the whole bunch of people. He chose 12 people, starting with Julius Caesar all the way up to, uh, I guess it's Domitian, uh, Nerva. The, that group of people he calls Caesars. 
So he doesn't refer to them as Judo Claudians or Flavians or anything. He, he calls them Caesars. Uh, so I think that's that's an important thing to, to bear in mind. It's it's a way that historians identify that group of people from the other group. And I mentioned Flavians, they're different from the Judeo Claudians, and then they're they're different from, for example, the Antonines, who are different from the Severans. And it's just a very convenient shorthand where you say that to uh someone who knows a bit about Roman history, and you can lock them in very quickly in that little the shorthand into a particular part of time. And you mentioned the House of Augustus, which I think personally is a much more Cooler name for the dynasty than the Yulu Claudians. It just sounds really much, in my opinion, still kind of really cooler than the Yulu Claudian dynasty. Well, actually, if you take it as literal way, I mean, Augustus basically means revered ones. You could say it's the revered family, mm. um, which, uh, which in a sense serves its purpose. I mean, it, by adopting that name, uh, being granted that name by the Senate mm. and then taking it, uh, you know, it, 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 in a sense, society, society elevated him slightly above the rest of the people, which which annoyed a lot of people, of course, but on the other hand, uh, recognized he had a very unique position in Roman society, which was one somewhat of his own making, um, you know, as, as a military commander, as a political strategist, um, and uh, a man who selectively wielded the knife, you know, took out his enemies when, when, when he needed to. And so, and of course, let's begin with the death of Caesar, because this mm. is where the story of the Roman Empire really begins and let's begin to speak to about how what was the succession be like and how the aftermath of the murder of Ulysses or the eyes of March. Well you know it's it's interesting when when you think about those times, um you use the word that's where the empire begins, you see and in in a sense mm. that's the crux of the story. Um that there was a group of people who in forty five, forty four BC had decided that the man Caius Julius Caesar was becoming too much like an autocrat, too much like a king, but he carefully didn't use the word king. He actually liked the title that he was given since I think was it 45, dictator. So dictator, a dictator, was a political title, which was which was perfectly legitimate. It was in the Roman political lexicon. Um, but it was really about power, a set of powers that was supreme, that were temporary. They would last three to six months and you were supposed to give them up once the emergency, the threat, the existential threat to the Roman Commonwealth was over. Um, but but Julius Caesar kind of liked it and they kept voting it for, for him. And finally in 44 BC, in the start of the year, around about January, maybe February, uh, the Senate agrees to call him dictator perpetuo, perpetual, an unending dictator. And he had taken to wearing a purple toga, uh, he had high red boots, which uh, which were sort of sanatorial boots, but they were pretty snazzy. And um, he had been given a laurel crown, and he would wear that. Now, he was partly bald, so he kind of liked that from, from the point of view of optics and aesthetics. But to other people, it, 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 it reminded them of Tarquinus Superbus. It reminded them of the Etruscan kings back in the 6th and 7th centuries. And there was a man called Brutus then, who uh, actually assassinated the king and committed regicide. And out of that act of regicide, a new style... It's kind of poetic. Well, it is, because another Brutus comes along and is reminded to do the same thing with Caesar. But I've got to say that um, out of that act of regicide comes a new style of government, which we call Republican, but actually is a, which, which, which brings a lot of baggage with it. Right? I mean, I live in the United States, which is a republic. Um, you live in a kingdom, right? Kingdom of mm. Norway. Uh, I, I came from the kingdom, 
and and that there there are certain emotional things that go with those designations. Now, Rome, in fact, is a sort of democratic autocracy which runs on consular years. So what that means is is that um, they elect rulers who are from among their political body, and they have two consuls, they have a senate, they have people's assemblies, they have different magistrates, uh, which have uh, different roles, whether it's jurisdiction, whether it's actually uh, weights and measures, or running gladiator shows, and managing temples, or looking after drains, these sorts of things. They have those, and they're elected pretty much every year. And that was called the res publica, the, the things public, the commonwealth, as I prefer to translate it. So it would be not quite right for us to use the word republic without understanding it's a Roman system that's quite unique. Only men can vote. Um, the offices, you have to be something like 30 years old before you can start serving in the different magistracies. And um, they carry the, the, um, the, the, the legal power called imperium. And interesting enough, imperium is the root of our empire in English. Um, and it, in fact, is, is the right to command and ultimately is the right to have life or death decisions over another Roman citizen. Now, the interesting thing is you can have imperium for one year, but at the end of it, you're accountable. So if you do something very bad, your countrymen can actually see you in court and they will hold you accountable for that. And I sometimes wonder, that's the bit that you know we're seeing in America right now is, is, is the Republic is struggling to deal with how do you hold someone to account for alleged crimes committed. And in the Roman system, it was quite efficient. And when you ask about if it's the turning point of the Republic to the empire, I, I argue with people, the Romans always called it the res publica. It was never Roman empire. It was always Roman Republic. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you read Augustus's uh, res gestae, which is his great inscription, it's a, like a sort of a things I did when I was emperor. Uh, he talks about the Roman people a lot. He talks about the imperium of the Roman people, the power of the Roman people. Um, and, and what that means is it, it, it hints at um, it's not just the land that you occupy. It's the, it's the influence that goes over that. And in fact, the Roman influence goes well outside the borders of what we now think of the Roman Empire. They go well past the wine. They go well past Euphrates and they go down into Africa. So it's so a Roman influence. Uh, it is not just simply what a man holds. It's also it, it's it's something that the people that uh, that they, they were able to wield in, in the same way. It's soft power, you could say, that they had. But but a magistrate had hard power. And when you go back to Julius Caesar, they felt that he had fallen in love with this hard power a bit too much. So a group of people you mentioned Martin he was becoming Julius. a Sulla eventually. Initially, yes. And the, the difference was that Sulla was smart enough to kind of like retire from it and go away and write his biography there was a real worry that Julius Caesar wouldn't do that. Um, and he was planning a big campaign to take... And he wasn't. Well, that's 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 debatable. I mean, this is where we, where, where we get into what do the sources tell us and what the modern historians think about that and so forth. To some degree, it's not really possible to know. I mean, there are just events. There are just little mm -hmm. events which uh, cause you to think. So, for example, in 45, uh, 44 BC, there's the famous Lupercal, the Lupercalia, which is a fertility festival. And, and in fact, if you've seen Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare, that's where the story starts. And in that portrayal on the stage, uh, Marcus Antonius, Mark Antony in the play, um, offers Julius Caesar a crown. 
And he offers it three times. And each time Julius Caesar poo-poos and says, no, I'm, I'm, I refuse this. And of course the people, you know, cheer and refuse. The, the problem is that that's based on a real event. And what it meant for Romans was this crown was like a diadem. It was like a crown with the, with, with, with the white ribbons on it, which is what kings wore. And the trouble is he was wearing the costume effectively a king. And this was the last act. Let me crown him. And Julius Caesar turns this away. But the trouble is it was very bad optics, very, very bad optics. So between that moment in time and the assassination, there's this plot. And in the case of uh, the famous assassin, Marcus Junius Brutus, clearly there was an historical link to an ancestor of his who killed a king, a Roman Etruscan king. And you could, you could say there's a sort of poetic uh, symmetry in that moment. There's a very good book actually about uh, Brutus that you can buy and he goes into the character, the motivations and, and all of that. Um, part of the challenge there, I think, is what you've got of, and your question really is what happens after. The naivete of them thinking that they get rid of this threat to the Respublica and everything will be okay. But in fact, it doesn't go anything like that at all. It's the classic case of they had no plan for what yeah. to do after they'd done the deed. And in fact, if you read the the history as it's through Plutarch and the various other accounts that we have, is the sense of chaos and panic. So as soon as the assassinations and Julius Caesar was stabbed uh, less than 23 times, uh, I think there's, uh, in, in Suetonus, I think there's reference to maybe it was the second or third stab that maybe actually killed him. Uh, finally, um, but anyway, the point is the body's left in the Theatre of Pompey. It's in, in a hall of the Theatre of Pompey, not in the Roman Senate House. The Senate itself was being rebuilt and uh, it wasn't available yet. The um, There are two senators left in the in the room, basically, who are just, they're sane enough to be able to say, what are we going to do? <laughs> um, and then a, a bunch of slaves are brought in and they carry out the dead body in the the story that we have is that literally the arm is dropping off the side of the of the of this uh, stretcher, if you will. It's a, it's a very grim scene, uh, and I presume the body's taken then back to the house of the Pontifex Maximus because Julius Caesar was the Pontifex Maximus, and that was around the corner in the Forum Romanum. So then you have panic, and people have looked at Julius Caesar as being their popular leader. And now the popular leader is gone. What now? Who's going to pay the bills? Who's going to give them bread? Who's going to look after their interests and so on? And uh, in this pandemonium, uh, there's an attempt to try and take control of this again by the conspirators or liberators, depending on your point of view. And in the next couple of days, um, they make speeches. Uh, Brutus supposedly makes a speech to the people to explain what they're doing. And that's, that's again, very famously immortalized in the, in the William Shakespeare account. And then Mark Antony also makes a speech. He, on the other hand, is thinking that this is his moment. He gets to maybe be the main man. And that's that's a mistake he goes on to make. We'll come back to that in a second. But the but the thing goes so badly wrong that the, the crowd riots and the conspiracy have to flee to the Capitol Hill. And they have gladiators and bodyguards to defend them up in the Capitol Hill. I mean, they can't even leave at this point. So they have to negotiate. Marcus Tudor Cicero actually... Uh, proposes a, a vote in the in the Senate that these guys should be frankly pardoned and made heroes. I mean, they have restored the Roman Republic after all. And he was not a conspirator. He was actually um, a sort of a friend of sorts to Julius Caesar um, and, and somebody certainly whose opinion was was always sought, being a former consul for 63. 
Um, and then finally, these conspirators are allowed to leave. And in the meantime, the army of Lepidus, Marcus Mears Lepidus, which happened to be outside the city, comes into the city and basically takes control. And then eventually a crowd assembles, takes the body of Julius Caesar, builds a pyre, and they burn the body in the forum. And the spot where that was, uh, where the body was burned becomes a becomes a monument. It becomes the focus of a new temple. And uh, you can even see it today. You can see there's, there's part of the podium of the temple of Julius Caesar where um, it, it, it's, it's separate from the, the rostrum, which is behind it. And it just goes to show that in this new architecture of the Roman city, that Julius Caesar is literally in the forum. He, he actually has a temple and there's a place where he's, uh, his, his history is, is, is anchored into the bricks and mortar of the city. And, and as his successor takes over, he will build more and more buildings in Rome, and they echo through the name Caesar back to this act. And and it's it's, it's quite uh, I think hard for us to understand how, in a manner of speaking, I'm trying to draw an analogy. Um, it, it's a sort of 9/11 moment for Rome, as 9/11 was 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 for us. It, it marked a turning point, and and Rome couldn't go back to that kind of place anymore. Um, that the people had lost their great uh, champion. Uh, the people that uh, thought that they had done a great deed were to learn that that wasn't the case. And in fact, they'd unleashed a whole new set of uh, torments and, and in fact, civil war ensued, as, uh, as was inevitably the case. And the man that, to everybody's surprise, who emerges from this is, is a young 18-going-into-19-year-old called Caius Octavius, and it turns out that Julius Caesar had nominated him, his great nephew, grand nephew to uh, Americans, uh, to be his successor. Yeah. He gets about three quarters of the wealth, but crucially, he gets the name. And uh, what's interesting um, in all of this, the young Caius Octavius, who will eventually be Augustus, is not even in Rome at this time. He's actually in what we now think of as Albania. Uh, in a How long time does it take before Caesar, young Caesar, gets to know that you, the old Caesar, the elder, to put it that way, and has been murdered, and he realizes that he has to act now for, and if he wants his inheritance? From uh, from my understanding, that there, there, there's uh, there's a book called by Nicolaus, the life of uh, uh, Augustus, um, and it, and it quite closely tracks all of these events. It was a matter of days, and he finds out because he gets letters. He gets a, lo a letter from his mother, and he gets a letter from his stepfather. And the one basically says, terrible things in Rome, don't come to Rome. The other one says, terrible things in Rome, come mm. to Rome. <laughs> mm. You know, you, you've got to take him out. But you've got to remember, he's, he's 18, just about to go into the age of 19, because this event takes place in March. His birthday's not till August. Um, and the, the, the curious thing is... He gathers his group of friends around with them, one of whom is the book you had in your hand, which is Marcus Agrippa, uh, who is also so right a here. Manager, that one, yeah. So he is with this young man, and he's also, there's another guy called Sawidianus, who turns out to have an important role uh, and then disappears from history. And there are two other three people who've got just like names like Lucius, so we don't even know the name of those. But but what it teaches you is the mindset of this this man who's going to be the leader of the of the Roman world who always takes the counsel of friends. He, he values other opinions, and then you make his mind up, you know? And the consensus uh, is that really, no, he should not be going to Rome. In fact, there's the 
there's the Macedonia Legion up the road. Why don't we just simply go and get their protection and wait it out and see what happens? But but Octavius's instinct is to go back to Italy. And that's what they do. They all agree. That's okay. Well, you know, you're, you're the one that uh, is going to make the decision to live with the consequences. And they all go to Italy. And um, they arrive not through Brindisium, but through a smaller port because they anticipate there may be a team of assassins waiting for them. And then once they're in Italy, they make their way to, of all places, Cicero's house uh, in Campania. And they they sit down and they have dinner with the great statesman, the man that had saved the Roman Republic in 63. And it's then that he learns the truth that, yes, actually, you, my boy, are the inheritor. You, 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 are, the, you are now the kind of the, the, the important guy around which a lot of things revolve. And what happened was that Marcus Antonius stood in the way of him getting his inheritance. He wouldn't really let him get hands on the money. And what had happened in the meantime, one of the first acts of Mark Antony had been to go get the will. And the will was in the house of the Pontifex Maximus. He had that, and he had some access to letters and deeds from um, Calpurnia, Caesar's now widow. And he was able, so the stories go, to insert names and change things within the will. I mean, they're all handwritten, right? So, you know, you could easily do this. Or take pages out and slip ones in, you know, glue new pages in. And eventually, after being treated pretty shoddily by Mark Antony, Marcus Antonius, uh, Octavius gets to have the will read and now discovers the extent to which he's now, one, very wealthy, and two, has this incredibly potent name. And uh, the recriminations start to happen with what's going on. And he is challenged by the young Octavius, who is now called Julius Caesar. He's challenged by him. Why have you let the assassins get away? I mean, this is, you know, you were his best friend. Why did you let him get away with it? And a sort of stress between between these two uh, men blows up. In the meantime, the Senate is voting honours to the liberators and they're granting provinces and you know, Decimus Brutus will get, you know, uh, uh, Transalpine Gaul and someone will get Syria. So they're just behaving as though nothing's really changed. It's business as usual for them. And ultimately, uh, the situation gets so bad that Mark Antony effectively uh, cuts a deal and then becomes an enemy of the Senate. And curiously enough, the, 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 the mission that the young Octavius, that we now call Caesar, uh, is concerned to avenge the death of his his adoptive father, Julius Caesar the Elder, as you call him. And what he does is quite extraordinary. He's now 19. He goes down to Capua with Marcus Agrippa and a couple of his friends with a big chest of money and goes to the old veterans of Caesar's legions and says, I'm here to avenge the death of my father. A heinous act. Are you with me? And they go, absolutely. And he comes back with an army. And what Cicero realizes is that actually this young man now has an army. We're just about to fight a war with Marcus Antonius. Um, and they, 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 they get into negotiation. And this 19-year-old negotiates to become a consul, to get all the trappings of the, of the powers and so on. You can think he's not supposed to have those until he's about 35, 40, but at the yeah. age of 19. Um, and this is where when you go back to the Res Gestae, his famous uh, monument, uh, that he talks about a faction, and this is the faction he's referring to. It's the, the assassins, and his mission is to hunt them down. In the next year or two, there's this uh, this struggle between the side of Mark Antony and his supporters, 
and the Senate, which at this point has actually been able to convince the young Caesar to take sides with it. And there's a, a, a big battle that takes part in uh, northern Italy, the end result of which is that uh, a, a, a truce develops. The end result of all of this conflict is a truce develops between Antonius, between the new Caesar, Octavian, other people will call him, and this Marcus Aemilius Lepidus that we'd heard earlier in, in, who had the army at the time of the assassination. And this group of three people take it upon themselves to avenge Caesar the Elder, the Julius Caesar. And that's what they do for the next several years. They they do it all the way through. Uh, they chase the assassins. And over a period of 15 years, all of the assassins will be hunted down and killed. Uh, one of the things that Marcus Agrippa has to do is actually try in court Caius uh, Cassius Longinus in absentia, because Caius Cassius is a long left Rome. But he pleads a trial that the man is guilty and he wins the trial. So, you know, the that they took that, that these these avengers are trying to follow a, a legal protocol to make it legitimate, but the ultimate aim is to kill them. And finally, at Philippi uh, in October, um, the, two battles take place, and um, the assassins, the main assassins, Brutus and Cassius, are killed. Uh, Marcus Antonius shows the world that he's still a great general, and actually, the young Octavian not so much because he spends a lot of time being sick, <laughs> as it turns out. But anyway, these people win. So they're effectively this this group of people, the three, the Lepidus, Antonius, and Octavius Stroke Caesar, are the victors. They're the ones who now divide the Roman territory into into three. And at this I'm point, I'm sorry for interrupting you right yeah. now, but I do want to derail a little bit as well because it's something you haven't spoken much about, and you mentioned briefly mentioned him. But I want to talk a little bit about Brutus as well mm. and what uh, the aftermath of the murder and what was his expectation? Did he expect that he would? be the next inheritor of Caesar's claim and be the next ruler? Or what, what was his... Because we're going to speak about him as well, and him versus Caesar in a second, but I want to talk a little bit about Brutus and the aftermath of the murder of Caesar as we can, well. Well, what we can work out from the sources, and, and, and you've got to be aware that the sources that we have have gone through the filter of time, so there aren't many of them, is the first point I'd like to make. But the second thing is the ones that survive, to some extent, you could say, have been sanitized by the fact that some would be allowed to be copied and survive and others were not. So to give you a real example, I know this is this is a side com commentary. Caesar wrote comedies, Caesar wrote uh, books of language and all sorts of things, and they were apparently very good, but they were suppressed by his successor. So actually Augustus decided to suppress them. And and I wonder how many books which were written by, and pamphlets and so which were written by these liberators that were actually taken out of circulation and were never actually allowed to survive beyond that year of 44 BC. So I don't believe that we've got anything surviving of Brutus's own writing. Uh, everything that we have will come through sources. Didn't he like write his own justification at some point? Or write his own account as, or as a play, kind of to justify the murder, if I remember correctly. Very likely, educated Romans were writers, and they would certainly uh, try to put their point of view over. And it might well simply be: you give the speech, that speech is written down, the speech is copied, and it's circulated amongst people. And people get, to, if they didn't get to hear it, they get to read it, or someone else will read it out for them. Which is typically how Romans read, by the way, they would actually read out loud. 
uh, rather than read it themselves. It's a different kind of style of writing. So what we understand is is that um, on on a superficial level, his objective was to remove the threat to the res publica, which is to say to remove the threat of an autocracy. And having removed it, the job is done. And now the Republic, the Senate, the People's Assemblies or the Magic can just go about their duty. Um, The first mistake he was, as I explained earlier, was to not understand that's not what was going to happen. The other thing also is that you could argue that he was slightly naive and maybe leaning into the mythology of his own ancestor, um, this, this this man who had built this republic. And, and he, in a sense, was that man reborn or through him, he was actually restoring a new reinvigorated republic. Um, we understand that there were rumors that he was even supposed to be Julius Caesar's son, unproven. I don't there's any evidence of that. But certainly the rumors and, in fact, some of the phrases that are given as Julius Caesar's last words, as he does, you to my son, for example, is one of them that's supposed to have said in Greek. Um, And that could also mean you to my boy. But it comes down to us as son, uh, which which infers some relationship. But it could be an old man to a younger one, you know. There is a suggestion that he, as a philosopher, um, as, as, as a person, he was a stoic. So he looked upon the world differently in the sense that uh, he wasn't Epicurean. He was a, he was a person that um, suffered through pains and, and dealt with those sorts of challenges and was a little austere in that sort of way. The other side of this thing is that he'd not always been a big advocate or ally of Julius Caesar. In fact, he actually was on the side of um, Pompey and the other uh, the, the senators uh, when when Julius Caesar made the famous crossing of the of the Rubicon back in uh, 40, uh, 50, 49 uh, BC. And he'd been on the losing side. And what does Julius Caesar do? He forgives him. He demonstrates his clementia, his clemency. And in a sort of way, you could say, well, uh, he had a lot to be grateful for. And how does he reward that gratitude? He kind of sounds really ungrateful, doesn't he? He doesn't come out lightly. Right. So I go back to my first point in the sense of the sort of political naivety, which is to say that we've got someone who is now a dictator in perpetuity um, and he won't go when we ask him to go. Then we must remove him through the act of assassination. And the political assassination had happened before. I mean, there were riots in the streets and people got killed and so on. I mean, Rome could be a violent place. This was exceptional because this happened in a political meeting. Right. I mean, this was this was this was. Um, not some in a dark alley somewhere. This was in full public view. And there may have been 23, there may have been 30, there may have been 40 or 50 people in the conspiracy, not all of whom necessarily managed to strike their daggers. But the point is, is that there were a lot of senators. And let's think about this. The Senate had actually grown to an enormous number. Um, it was originally something around about 300. Julius, as I recall, actually built it up to like 900 people. And a lot of those were his supporters. So they were a lot of allies. So if that's a sort of full house, and they wouldn't have all been in on the, the day of the Ides of March, by the way, but it would suggest that the, the 23 or 40, whichever it was, was not a large number of the total Senate. Uh, and a lot of those people who were in the Senate were actually people who had reason to be grateful to Julius Caesar and had a lot to lose as a result of him getting into any trouble or, or so on and so forth. And um, Brutus must have thought that these people could be brought on side at some point. Look, 
The issue here is to stop a man becoming too powerful, which will actually ultimately threaten what we've built here, which is the Republic. And the fact that he didn't have a plan afterwards, or maybe they did have a plan, but they had misjudged completely the mood of the crowd. And in this instance, the crowd wants vengeance. I mean, if you think about it, Julius Caesar was embarking all sorts of public building programs. There was there was a point at which, for example, to rebuild uh, the voting house. Um, they were in the process of building the Senate house. There were all sorts of uh, parks and things being built for the public. And they were going to straighten up the, the, the River Tiber at some point because it kept flooding. And they didn't get done. They got done, by the way, by Augustus. So a lot of things that Augustus is credited with having done and Marcus Agrippa. So the plans were already made by Julius Caesar's architects, uh, but he got killed. So they didn't get built for, for a while. And the other big project, which uh, Julius Caesar was going to embark on, which was a conquest in Parthia, it didn't happen. And therefore, on the assumption the Romans would have won, all the wealth from Parthia didn't end up by coming back to Rome. So the people lost out on that as well. So you can, can, you, you can imagine then that in misjudging that, um, Brutus really had uh, created a big problem for himself. So, of course, Brutus did fall at the Battle of Philippi. And let's talk about next, because Mark Antony does team on the side of Augustus, and sorry, Caesar, until the Brutus is defeated. But then they kind of the fallout, and it's, of course, Cleopatra, who comes in in this game um, at this point, that he sides with her, goes against Caesar, and let's, I'm, I'm trying to, we have a lot of talk about, things to talk about, as I said in the beginning, so let's talk yeah. this really briefly, so let's talk about what led that briefly, then what led up to the battle of Actium, and how, yeah. how, okay, we spoke, and again, we spoke about this in our Agrippa episode last year, but let's talk about what led up to Actium, yeah. and how yeah. Actium happened. So the, the, the interesting thing is, yeah, so if we go back to, there are three men now in charge of the Roman world, and one is Octavian, who we'll now call, uh, let's, let's call him Octavian, right? Because I think most people would know him. Mm-hmm. So Octavian has given himself the West, Italy and the West, all the way through to Spain. Lepidus gets North Africa and Sicily, and that's pretty much a, oh, but by the way, he's also the Pontifex Maximus. The rest on the eastern side, the oriental part of the Roman Empire, goes to Marcus Antonius. And uh, I, th- I think that the the way that the sources tend to portray him as he's ambitious, he wants to go and take on the Parthians. So he wants to do what Julius Caesar wasn't able to do. He needs an army, he needs money, and he gets into, into I was going to say into bed, in this case, literally with Cleopatra, Queen Seven of, of Egypt. And she won't provide him an army, she'll give him money. And Marcus Antonius goes off on these terrible campaigns in Armenia and, and out there and, and loses army after army and completely, uh, frankly, screws up his military campaigns. I think he loses legions and standards. We all know about Teutoburg and the loss of the three eagles. Yeah. Well, he lost more than three out in, in, in Parthia. And in fact, that was a thing that would come to be an issue for the future uh, Augustus. So there are things that he is doing which are really not authorized by the Roman Senate. And there's a general sense that this man is going native. In fact, he's abandoning the strictures of Roman dignity and uh, the rules of engagement. I mean, he's supposed to be basically a Roman magistrate, right? And he's got duties that go with that. And what he's doing, in fact, is giving he's giving countries and nations to members of his family. He's not he's not authorized to do that. 
And in the meantime, the uh, the personal relationship between him and Octavian deteriorates. It becomes very personal and very uh, mean and rude. They, they write pretty mean, horrible letters to each other. And in an attempt to try and solve this, uh, Augustus, Octavian, uh, actually allows his sister, Octavia, to marry Marcus Antonius. Well, he's already he's already got a, you know a, a cavorting with Cleopatra at this time, and in fact, he Antony is saying you need to send me ships and troops and things because I got this war over here fighting. And what what Octavian does, he sends them a few troops and his sister, and say you know here's your wife to be. They marry. He basically treats her pretty pretty badly, but what that does is it brings in the um, the Julian Octavian. Mm-hmm. And Antonian lines into this family now, right? And uh, as the years go by, and we're talking really not very, very many years, but we're talking basically from uh, it would be uh, like forty BC through to thirty that 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 decade, where the, the the Roman Empire revolves around the relationship between two men, and it becomes very very bad indeed to the point that the Senate agrees basically on, on, a, on a vote proposed by Octavian at this point, that Mark Antony uh, has, has become subsumed by the, the wile and charms of a foreign queen. They don't make Mark Antony the, the, uh, the wicked one in this. They make Queen Cleopatra the wicked one in this relationship. A foreign power is subverting Roman influence and the good name of the, of the country. And in, in doing that, uh, it, it enables... Octavian to be able to get the sanction of the Senate to basically wage war against them. And this is where, into 31, uh, we actually get him then building this army, which then starts to move eastwards. In the meantime, Antony and Cleopatra have moved their fleet into uh, the Bay of Gomorrah, which is around the little town of Actium. And for the next three to six months, they they play this waiting game. Who's go- who's going who's gonna to attack who? And it turns out that um, Antony has built his camp on the south side, which is marshy and bug infested. There's mosquitoes, there's malaria. On the north side, where Octavian's forced to build his camp, there's like a fresh water spring and dry ground. So it all works out pretty good for him. And what they keep doing is trying to keep raiding each other's camps to provoke a big battle. And then finally, on the uh, 2nd of September of 31 BC, the battle, which we now call the Battle of Actium, takes place it's uh, a, an important battle from the point of view that first of all it's it's, it's the the two powers find a clash um it's not clear as to what the strategy was on Antony's side as to whether he was going to try and break the fleet of um octavian at this point and his fleet basically was actually commanded by by, by agrippa um or whether in fact the idea was to escape with as much of the fleet and army as he could the end result, when when the battle takes place, um, Agrippa basically is able to use his local knowledge of the way the winds and the sea works because he's been campaigning up and down the western side of the Balkans already for about three months using a kind of hit and run pirate campaign. He understands the way the weather works, and it would seem to be that Antony doesn't. So the two fleets basically face face each other, and that the way that uh, Agrippa plays the the, the tactics is to withdraw his fleet ever westwards to draw the uh, fleet of Antony and Cleopatra out into the bay. And at a certain point, then they sort of start to break up and envelop the ships. 
Well, during this kind of clash, the Egyptian fleet of, I think it's about 19 ships, laden with all the gold, they escape. And at this point, seeing Cleopatra sailing away, famously Mark Antony jumps from his ship aboard hers. He abandons his army. It causes almighty chaos. And in the meantime, the decision that uh, Agrippa and Octavian face is, do we follow them or do we stay here and destroy the fleet? And they decide to stay and capture the fleet. And in fact, the captured vessels, which are a couple of hundred, form the basis of a navy that uh, Octavian is able to use in other parts of the Mediterranean in the decades to follow. And he abandons completely his army. He has, he has thousands of troops on the on the mainland. They're all basically uh, left. Uh, they, they engage with uh, Octavian's troops. They, in the end, they're convinced to surrender. And we fast forward through to August the 1st of the year uh, 30 BC. And it's a very forlorn situation where uh, Antony is now in Egypt, in Alexandria, and he's trying uh, to basically strike back, you know, the empire strikes back, except that it, it's a campaign that doesn't have any particular chance of surviving. Uh, he, in the end, um, it, it can't get Octavian to fight him. He goes away, retreats, commits suicide. Cleopatra, in the meantime, is trying to negotiate a settlement with Octavian. Um, he wants to basically have her kingdom and her treasure because he's, he's debt financed his campaign. He, he's actually paid a lot of people and he owes them lots of money. And um, he's he's also very keen to try and get Cleopatra in a triumph. Cleopatra cheats him of all of that by supposedly committing suicide, whether it was by asp or by assassination, don't know. The stories are by snake. Um, and at this point, there's really only two people in charge, which is to say uh, Octavian, who's now got West and East, and then Lepidus has got this little tiny piece, and basically sidelined anyway. So effectively, at this point, there's only one man in charge, um, and he's able to claim all of the armies, all of the navies, which puts him in an immense position of power. And a one very terrified Senate, because, of course, at this point, they have no means to uh, impose its will on, on him. And they have to, over the next two or three years, reach a political military accord. And it's very clever how Octavian, who in 27 BC meets with all of these people with various ideas as to what he'll do, comes to this arrangement that he will surrender his powers. He will basically give the Senate the empire back, except those parts of the empire where things are still a little bit uncertain, a little bit unstable, and they happen to be all the provinces around the edge. So sort of think, you know, um, the, the ones running along the Rhine, running along across all the way down like the, the, the Danube and uh, like, for example, most of Spain would be, would be part of that. And by an amazing fluke, that's where the army is. So he gets to keep the army plus these territories and the Senate gets to keep the Mediterranean provinces where the tax and the money and all the good life is. And, and this situation of basically two kinds of provinces is the way the Roman Empire runs for probably the next two centuries. And it's called, the hist modern historians called it the first constitutional settlement. They didn't call it that. Uh, they were just very grateful. The Senate was very grateful that he was able to basically come to an agreement. And as a result of that, they call him Augustus which means this revered one. And uh, he wants to be called Romulus, but they thought that that wasn't a very good idea to call him Romulus. So he agrees with Augustus, and that's how we now know him. And at that point, his name is, is properly Imperator, which means commander. He, he'd chosen that. Uh, it was, it was a, a war title given to victorious generals and normally added to the end of a man's name, but he took it as his first name, which was really interesting. So he was always called Imperator, 
and then it was Caesar Augustus. But there was another part to it. In the years immediately after the assassination of Julius Caesar, he was turned into a god. He was made divus. And this was validated by the fact that there was a meteor or a comet flying over Rome. And yeah. this, of course, was clearly a, clearly a sign from heaven that Julius Caesar had turned into a god. And the beautiful thing for, for Augustus is because he was the Phileus of Julius Caesar, he was therefore Divus Phileus, mm. son of God. So in fact, you've got this incredible name where the name consists of Commander Caesar, son of the god Augustus. I mean, talk about giving yourself a big name. Um, and my good friend Karl Galinsky here in Austin would, would tell you, very hard to argue with the son of a god. Uh, particularly you've got an army behind him, mm. right? So, so you can see his powers at this point are almost unassailable. And they make adjustments and they uh, that they have to make agreements on certain points of practice. Um, he's still able to, uh, for example, perform as consul on a regular basis. Uh, he has tribunicians. Because he, power, he does realize that he can't run the empire with, without the Senate, and he does realize that he still need them. And I want to talk about something as well, because it does get, as Goldsworthy mentioned, mentioned in his biography of Augustus, that it does get a lot of titles throughout his reign, but most of them he do refuse. He doesn't want the titles that he's given by the Senate. But this, so let's talk about the, the remaining rules. And of course, Teutoburg, Teutoburg Forest is something we have to mention, talk about as well. Mm -hmm. I, I think the, the, the key thing is that he had learned what not to do. Uh, but by being the adopted son and inheritor of a legend who had got assassinated, you, you mm. want to avoid that fate. So he knew he must avoid at all costs the look of a king. Uh, he refused the title of dictator, uh, which I think was around um, 1819 BC, something like that, because they all sent the wrong signals. He, he had presented himself as the restorer, restitutor of old political principles of the res publica. And in all ways, you could say, well, the Senate's still there, the consuls are still there, the voting assemblies are still there, edals, magistrates of every kind, they're all still there. It, it, it's the old system, huh? Well, actually, of course, it was a little bit more um, nuanced than that because most of the people in the Senate were people that were survivors of purges and civil wars and so on. I mean, they were basically people who owed loyalty to Augustus. And there were some people like, for example, Calpurnius Piso and other people who refused to be easily influenced by this and would still continue to be a thorn in the side of those people and would, you know, remind them that, you know, well, we are a republic and there's no one man in control. But um, but but they, they keep coming back with, with slight adjustments to all this. And what, what Augustus spends his time really in his province, Proinchia, and by the way, province in this case means duty, so he didn't. It was presented of his his obligation was to try and pacify these 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 regions around the proconsular provinces, where which had been pacified and there was money and taxes and a good life for those who could have it. Um, and then when those were pacified, he would then hand them over to the Senate. And every so often he would say, "You can have Illyricum, but I'll take Sarnaica, and and you can have this place, but I'll take that one." And they they shift things around a little bit depending on the uh, situation. Uh, the key thing is he professionalizes the Roman army and, and he is able to do that because one, it basically is swearing loyalty to him. Um, and this, in a sense, fossilizes a, uh, a practice that had begun really under Marius Sulla, where people, the generals were raising their own armies, paying for their own armies, and they would therefore be loyal to their commander. 
Well, if you remember in 30 BC, he basically has the entire army. A lot of it is demobbed and they bring in new recruits. And those new recruits haven't seen the Civil War. I mean, they're young kids, they're 18 or so. The older guys have now retired and they're in colonia, uh, colonies around the empire, uh, building civilian lives. And they, they now stay, start to, to build a permanent army which has 16 years of service and there are training regimes and there are campaigns they go on either variously to keep things like um, tribes which are being belligerent, keep them under control. So those are wars of necessity. There were some wars of choice. They went on an expedition, for example, to Arabia Felix, uh, and they did try to actually move into Germany. And some were successful and some were not. Crucially, what Augustus decided not to do was pick a fight with Parthia. And that's important because Julius Caesar was going to, Marcus Antonius did and failed abysmally, lost armies, and what he did negotiate... In Crassus to, tried to part, take on Parthia as well at some point. That's Yes, so in fact you've got these generations, that's 53, and then you've got around about sort of uh, 36, I think it is, 38 BC. So yeah, you've got a succession of really bad failed attempts at trying to take on the Parthians, who were an equal match in pretty much every way of the Romans militarily and politically. They had a landmass of empire, which was probably about the same in size, and they were sophisticated and nuanced. In, in a way. And so so these two people were never really going to, one was never going to win over the other, or if it did, at immense cost, which would have been destabilizing for their other dominions. So the the issue that Augustus very smartly comes up with is a way to have a treaty with the King of Kings in Ctesiphon or Persepolis. And uh, they respect the Euphrates as the border. Uh, they negotiate on an island in the Euphrates to hand over Roman prisoners that are still alive and standards. And this becomes a very important moment for Augustus because he can say, look, I have established peace between the, the, the great enemy to the east. I have returned the honor of Rome by bringing these standards back. They're very showily put in his new forum in Rome, the Forum Augustum, which has been built this whole time. And there's a Temple of Mars, and inside this Temple of Mars, by the way, is Julius Caesar's sword, and he's got these, these standards. It's, it's very much a militaristic shrine. And significantly, whenever a commander has his new duties, he would go to the Forum Augustum, and he would meet with Augustus, and he would swear the oaths, and he would take his order papers, and he would go do his duty for a year or two years or whatever his term of duty was. And he, then he would come back and hand them over, and they, they, they undo the ceremony and so on. So, so Augustus very cleverly creates this um, militaristic dimension to his principate, his, his, his time as first man. And I think it's important to remember, again, we come back to this idea of emperor. In, in Augustus's eyes, it was political, but very much a military role. He had an army, and he had to act like he had an army. And in fact, it's, I think it's no... It's no small uh, coincidence that the one famous statue that we have of him at Prima Porta is he's wearing the complete garb, the muscle cuirass of a commander, and he's got the polydumentum, and he's raising his hand like that. My own belief, by the way, is that what he holds on his other stand isn't a staff, but actually is an eagle standard. And my, my belief in that, if you look forward about 1,500 years later, a coin which actually shows Germanicus uh, in triumph has on the other side a statue of, an, of a man in a cuirass with a holding a stump with an eagle on the top. And that was to appeal in those times that Germanicus had actually recovered statu uh, 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 eagles lost to Arminius, the Germans at Teutoburg. 
And what Augustus in the Prima Porta statue was doing was appealing to the fact, and it's all over the breastplate, the, the standards from Carai, from Crassus, and the other ones from Marcus Antonius. So there was this idea of um, restoring dignity and honor. And this is, this is part of the, this is the political military philosophy that Augustus has. So then we go to Germany. And the early years of Augustus's principate, his reign, if you will, and, and I want to preface that by saying he had to keep going back to the Senate every five years to renew his power. And this was part of the optics. It wasn't simply, Augustus, you're in charge, mate, off to off you. No, he had to come back and he had to report on progress. You'd have to actually sort of say, I now need to renew my powers. And the Senate would discuss and say, yes, we give you for five more years, Imperium Proconsulare, you can, you can go ahead and continue to pacify those areas of the world that we've granted to your care. And he would um, initially, he finished the wars in Spain. So in the 20s BC, they, they completed a 200-year project to completely annex the whole of the Iberian Peninsula by taking on the Cantabri and Asturias. So basically Asturias and the Cantabria in, in Spain today and the Basque region. Um, and Marcus Agrippa had been a big, big, important person in, in that campaign. But but Augustus himself had taken part in it, interestingly enough. So we always think of Augustus as not being somebody who got his hands dirty. As a young man, he actually was in, in the fight, famously in Illyricum and also in uh, in Spain. But he tended to fall ill, and we don't quite know why all of that, that all happened. But nevertheless, the other area that really represented opportunity for them was everything north of the Alps. So basically, you go over the Po River, north of the Po River, through the Alps, all the way up to the Rhine and the Danube was pretty much open for conquest. The bit that was conquered was Gaul, which was Julius Caesar's um, achievement, if you will, an achievement. But he had done very little to pacify it. In fact, Augusta and Marcus Gaul had spent a lot of time building road networks, building cities, doing the stuff of Romanization, as we, as we now call it. Mm. But they saw an opportunity when in 1617 BC, there was a raid across the Rhine by uh, Germanic tribes, which caused mayhem and havoc, and havoc in Gaul. And the consequence of that was a campaign to pacify those people across the Rhine. And it led to a four-year war where Drusus the Elder, who was the father of Germanicus, the stepson of Augustus, younger son of Livia, brother of Tiberius. Just imagine having all those titles. Right? And you're only about 24, 25. Uh, he, he leads a four-year campaign with some success. He takes the army ultimately to the Elbe River, which nominally becomes like the Roman frontier for a while. But he dies on the return, which is a big moment of uh, disappointment. And in fact, what's significant in Livy's famous history, Ab Urbe uh, Condita, from the foundation of the city, he ends the book in 9 BC with the death of Drusus. It's very interesting. It would be really interesting to, if those pages had survived why? Well, to some extent, this Drusus represents this older style hero, like uh, Claudius Marcellus would have been, like Romulus would have been, going charging into the middle of battle to take spoils from his opponent. And he dies. He falls off his horse. The force collapses on him, breaks his thigh. When that happens, people rarely survive because you get blood poisoning. Uh, it's happened several times through history. What's fan fascinating about this is that um, Augustus is in Ticino, Ticinum, where his brother is, and reports come down. You must come because Drusus is, is gravely sick. And in two, uh, in in twenty four hours, 
Tiberius, with a with a, a Germanic guide, races on a horse, 200 miles. It was the land speed record of the day, just to arrive where his brother is dying and they exchange some famous few words, lost to us in time. And the result of that is Tiberius brings the body back to Rome. It's, it's, it's a big ceremony. It's a big set state funeral. And it marks a turning point in a way that um, Augustus has now lost several people that were close to him who could have been successors, who were popular with the Roman people. And what it ultimately means is that there's more pressure on Augustus to find who's going to succeed him. And he turns to his family and finds he's not really got that many kids of his own. So he goes to Marcus Agrippa and said, hey, you, you know, you married my uh, my daughter, Julia, and you happen to have two kids, Caius and Lucas. Love them to bits. I'd like to adopt them. And Marcus Agrippa says yes. So it's an extraordinary situation where a man living gives his sons up for adoption to his best friend. And I think that's that. That gives I mean, me. Would you do that if, if I asked you? If I were your best friend, and asked you, "Hey, can I adopt your kids now? They, I want to make them the next emperor of Rome." Would you do? Would you do that? Well, but see, I don't know whether that's where that. Don't know how the conversation was was mm. couched because let's remember this: there was not a title of emperor. There was not mm. a job description of like chief chief exemplar or emeritus of all magistrates. There wasn't. It was it was a bundle of powers. It was it was the power of consul. It was the power of tribunition, uh, a tribune. Um, there would have been other things in there. Plus this immense prestige of the man who inherited the name of Julius Caesar, who had this aura of Augustus. Right. So, so there was nobody else in the world who had that. And that, by the way, is part of the problem as you go through the succession that nobody really has that. They always have to keep saying, hey, I'm linked to this guy. That gives me legitimacy. So in the case of with with those two sons, he hopes that he can bring them up. And the emerging uh, person in, in all of this is the man I'm writing a book about right now, who's Tiberius Claudius mm. Nero, who uh, the son of Livia. And if you're watching, for example, Domina, um, I'm not going to talk about much about Domina, but you know, if you watch Domina, you'll see how they're portraying Tiberius. If you watched I, Claudius recently on BBC Four, you have seen how Robert Graves and uh, Jack Pullman presented Tiberius. And by the way, I don't think he was like that. Well, that's one of the things I'm trying to deal with in, in my biography is try to actually get to the real character of Tiberius. But but this is a man who had been fighting the wars efficiently, doggedly, reliably, unquestioningly for his stepfather. And there's a point where having fought mainly in Illyricum, where the, the Romans were really struggling to try and pacify the people they thought were already conquered. So so Illyricum had been part of the Roman Empire. This is the bit that's the Balkans. So it's, 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 it's north of Greece. It includes Albania, a part of Croatia, Dalmatia, all those areas, right? They're, they're kind of this area that the Romans would call Illyricum. It's important because there's a road that runs through it called the Via Ignatia. And the Via Ignatia runs from basically, um, I think it's Apollonia, all the way through to uh, the other side of uh, north of Greece to the Black Sea, and that's the main route, route uh, road to get to Asia, right? So without that, you know, it, it's, you have to go sailing, and it's this was a straight road, and it had been built, um, I think, 120 BC, something like that. So it had been around for about a century or so. And the problem is, is that the, the tribes around that area keep squabbling and breaking into fights, either with each other or with the Romans. Uh, Augustus, as a young man, had fought there in the middle 30s BC, 
and they thought they defeated them, but apparently not. And Agrippa goes there in, in, in 13 and 12 and can't seem to get that to work. And finally, with the death of Agrippa, Tiberius begins to take more and more of a prominent role, filling the shoes, if you will, of, of, of Marcus Agrippa, which you know, he had very big shoes. So it's a big role to fulfill. Marcus Agrippa is about 55 when he died. Uh, Tiberius is still in his like 29, something like that. So there's a big age gap. But in, in personality, interestingly enough, they're outspoken. Uh, they are sure of themselves. Um, and Tiberius, if you read, I think it's either Josephus or Philo, he was regarded, he was, he was nicknamed the old man. They thought that he had a, a wise head, an old head on young shoulders. He didn't suffer fools lightly. He read a lot. He wrote plays and poems. Um, he was a military guy. He'd been he'd been a military tribune in Spain when he was in his late teens, about 18 years old or so. Um, he had, had taken on responsibilities at a young age. I was very much your typical sort of political military Roman. He'd been given uh, roles to, to, to fulfill in uh, Italy. Uh, one of his roles, uh, I think, as quaestor was to actually uh, ensure that the grain supply was, was, was in order. But one of the other things he had to do was to inspect prisons. There were prison farms in, in Italy at the time, and there was great abuse. In order to run basically the great latifundia, the big fields which were growing wheat and, and plants and so on, for, for Roman consumption. Um, innocents were just basically smuggled, uh, snapped off the street and, and forced into slavery. And he would actually have to go and investigate those and found some very unacceptable practices. So all through his young life, Tiberius had seen the underbelly of the Roman Empire, its blood and its gore and its stink, um, and understood how it worked. Probably the way that many people in Augustus's family didn't. Certainly Caius and Lucius, who'd had a charmed upbringing, didn't. Um, and there's a sense that in the in the writings that Tiberius gets a bit, frankly, cheesed off. Can I say pissed off on the on, on the uh, sure? Yeah, yeah. Guess. <laughs> I could say a lot worse words, but 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 the way you get the, the impression is this man who's now you know thirty something who's done all of these things whenever he's asked to do it, he does it, and he's being recognised. I mean, uh, you know, in, in the uh, in the in the on the return of. Uh, Augustus and Tiberius from the east. And remember, I talked about the, the Euphrates where the handing back of the standards. Tiberius was right in the middle of that. Tiberius was the man that Augustus sent. So they went off to the east. They went off to Athens and Samos and other places. But it was Tiberius who actually went to the Euphrates and sat with the delegates of the Parthians, negotiated the handover, and came back with the standards. That was Tiberius who did that. And so when they return to Rome, uh, Tiberius is rewarded with the praetor, a, pro, a pro-praetor position, which means he can become a governor in, in a province. And he's, he's very young. I mean, he's in his 20s, he's supposed to be at least 35, maybe 40, to officially do those things. And Augustus also gives his younger brother, by the way, the same recognitions, so he can serve those things five years younger than expected. So you can see already there's the, he's bringing these guys up in, in, in the political system. They're sort of being marked out for great things, but what those great things aren't quite, quite, quite clear at this point. And Tiberius, by the time he sees the rise of these Caius and Lucius, you might think that I did all the hard work and these guys get, get all the attention. I mean, they get the pick of things. They go wherever they want. Well, anyway, so uh, Caius is given um, a military expedition to basically do some activities in Armenia. 
where there's been some trouble. And his other brother is sent off to the Iberian Peninsula to Spain. And they both die. They die from disease or something. In the case of Archaeus, there seems to have been a wound uh, sustained in a siege which, which affected his mind. Um, he never made it back to Rome. In fact, uh, the, two, the fact that the two sons both died within about two years of each other um, left Augustus completely and utterly bereft. Um, he'd already lost Marcus Agrippa in 12, and to lose the two boys in, I think, 4 and 2, 280, something like that, um, left him in, in, in a terrible pickle. In the meantime, Tiberius had said, I'm out of here. And he actually went to Rhodes. He, he supposedly in self-exile. Uh, and this is one of the things I'm wrestling with in my own research is why did he go to Rhodes? Um, part of it, it ironically, there are, there are a couple of really, really interesting novels um, which uh, which deal with, with Tiberius. And sometimes the novelist can go places that the historian can't, that, that they can say, well, this and this, ah, right, uh, maybe that's what it was. The historian can only say there are two things and what could we maybe deduce from this? But you can't say that's how it is. The novelist in these two cases um, suggests that he was just keen to get out of the way. If if these two young men were going to be the boys to take on the big project, he didn't need to be there anymore. And good that that was because he would love to be studying Greek poetry, doing philosophy, you know, eating food and looking at sunsets. And by going to Rhodes, he could do that. He was fed up of war, and that that's one interpretation. The other interpretation is that he just got so pissed off. He basically gave Augustus the middle finger and says, I'm gone, and goes there. So over the next several Here you years... Go, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take my ball and I'm, I'm, I'm going home. Uh, so we don't know why Tiberius leaves to go to Rhodes. Um, interesting enough, in that time, he develops a friendship with Thrasyllus, who's a philosopher stroke astronomer. Tiberius develops a very deep interest in Chaldean mathematics, as I think it's referred to, astrology. Uh, some people say, well, what he was, it wasn't the act of astrology, but trying to predict the future. This is a guy that wants to sort of see what's coming so he can prepare for it. Um, and it becomes somewhat of a, a QO for him because people say, well, this is just weird. You know, in the same way that Adolf Hitler was obsessed with, uh, you know, yeah. um, things to try and anticipate what the future was. Well, here was Tiberius, who was deeply interested in this whole. Uh, strange pseudoscience and anyway so, so this friendship develops between those two men and in fact continues for many many years after that um, and, and, and by the time the loss of Caius and Lucius it's not clear who on earth is going to take over so there seems to be a, a decision reached that okay Tiberius can come back um, he had lost his tribunician power. He basically was a, a Roman citizen without any any powers at all at that point. And he comes back to Rome. Augustus basically rehabilitates him. Um, I should point out in the meantime um, that there is a decision to adopt him, uh, to adopt the remaining son of um, Marcus Agrippa, who's nicknamed Posthumus. His name is actually Marcus Agrippa too, but we all refer, refer to him as Posthumus Agrippa. So he gets adopted. So there's two frontline candidates in the case of Augustus dying. And just as a failsafe, Tiberius is required to adopt his nephew, who is Germanicus. So there's basically there's three layers of potential succession. So as far as Augustus is concerned, he's sorted the future out because every other attempt had failed at this point. So Tiberius now knows that uh, he is going to inherit 
this role. And the trouble is nobody's really quite sure what that role is because there's not, as I said, there's no job description that says, here's here's what an emperor does. Those 25 things, go away, become a student and, and mm-hmm. get a degree in it. It doesn't happen. So, so the only way you can do it is by doing the various aspects of this thing that's called being emperor. Mm-hmm. And in a way, Tiberius is the only man who's around to be able to do that because he's been around so long. He's 40, 42. He's fighting wars in his 20s, in, in, in the 20s BC, and he's gone through all the different geographies, um, fighting wars, doing negotiations, working with people, knows the system inside out. Tiberius is the obvious choice. And I want to help. I want to hesitate you to be more controversial, but if there is some some more controversy around Tiberius' rule, isn't there? Because he is said to, you know, he does, doesn't stay very long in Rome. He doesn't like the city very much, and he said supposedly to murder senators in Capri. He supposed to have sexual origins there, but in I mean, discussed this a little bit before the recording as well. But you know, in my opinion, he. And we discussed this briefly in our episode about Caligula somewhat three years ago now with Anthony Barrett, where we talked about, no, no, he wasn't really that kind of person to have sexual orgies or kill murder senators like we talked about. He was a military man. That was, it was, that was his trade. And he was, you know, as we spoke about, he liked poetry and that kind of astrology. So it's, it doesn't sound like the exciting sex life that he had. On property, and I want to talk a little bit about the mythology surrounding Tiberius' reign and rule. Well, this I, I spent nearly a year writing one chapter in my book because mm. I tried to get to this question: How do we get the impression of a man that we have today, and how did it differ for the perception of people that were his contemporaries? And it's a fascinating story. I won't bore you with it all. I'll simply say is that it starts with our sources. The the, the sources that we mostly rely on are going to be Tacitus um, and Suetonius and Cassius Dio. And if you take Suetonius in his book, The Lives of the Caesars, of which he chooses 12, starting with Julius Caesar, and therefore Tiberius is number three in the the book, um, that the way that, that, that he is created in the book is a series of little cameos you know all the things we talked about his military background the family the claudian family he was not a julian he was a claudian the claudians had a particular sort of stick in the mud slightly tempestuous slightly kind of belligerent group of people but they were bedrock old family romans uh they had they had a lot of famous people in the family tree and to some some degree you could say that tiberius had to live up to that so I'm, i'm sure that was what was the case, both he and his brother were were effectively uh, inclined to military matters, but they were also pretty skilled in in, in, in politics. Uh, in Tacitus's case, um, I think you have to think about the book that he writes, which is um, the Annals, as really the story of how power in one man corrupts the Republic. So all of the stories that Tacitus tells is, is, is contrasting the decay of this institution. And in the case of Augustus, he sort of comes to this wishy-washy conclusion. Well, after a civil war, it kind of had to be the way it was going to be done if we were not to have more civil wars. And Augustus was okay 
But then what happened after that was not okay because these guys start off pretty well and then they get expectations of they're going to do great things. And then in the last part of their years, they really fail in various degrees and they fail progressively worse and worse and worse. So in fact, you have these stories about Tiberius and then of course Caligula comes along and Claudius was supposed to be an idiot, you know, and things like that because he was lame. Mm. And then Nero, I mean, the ultimate, you know, and then finally get to the Flavians. And if you've got to remember is that Tacitus is writing at around about the time of the Flavians. And yeah. they're very concerned to show that we are not like the Julio-Claudians. We're a much better, all to, you know, honest to goodness, Roman family. And by the way, you know, we beat the Jews. So we, you know, all that. So good for us, chest thumping stuff. And then in terms of Cassius Dio, who's writing about 150, 200 years later again, he is not a Roman born in Italy. He's actually he's born in, in, in the eastern part of the empire, but he is very proudly Roman, speaks Greek, writes in Greek, and is a senator, and very proud of being a senator and everything the Senate stands for. Even in that time, there is an honor of prestige. He feels the, the weight of the ages of the Ciceros and all these other famous Romans that, that he is a bearer of. He's a, he, he wears the cloak, the toga of those people. So these are the people writing the story of Tiberius and Caligula and Nero and all the other people. So I think you have to understand that context. If, however, you read Josephus and Philo and even the Christian historians, I mean, this is the one thing I was quite surprised by, is that even the Christian historians don't look at Tiberius as being negative, and that tells you something. But if you look at Philo and Josephus, they, they, they refer to him as being fair and organized and respected and respectful. When there are problems, for example, like with earthquakes, what does Tiberius do? He provides aid to the cities that are afflicted so they can rebuild and he can provide stuff. On the battlefield, he presumably has his own carriage, a sort of like a field army ambulance, which is supposed to be for his use, but he allows the ordinary soldiers to be able to use it. So so when you read Velius Paterculus, from which that, that that's one of the stories, some people will say that Velius Paterculus is a little bit of an apologist for, for him, but... Yeah, he, he, he's very pro-Tiberius, but the thing is he knew him personally, right? He actually went on campaign with him, he served with him. And that gives a very unique perspective into that, because he was a contemporary, he was there. So I think we have to bear his insights and put them uh, firmly on the table alongside the other people, maybe even, even closer in, because, I mean, you know, he was a contemporary. Um, and at this point, you have to understand that um, we're one emperor into the Julio-Claudius. Nobody knows how long this thing is going to be, right? I mean, it's not like that they, they have, a, oh, we're now, we're now the empire, and this is how it's going to be for now. They have no idea how this works. Um, there was no... Peter you know, let's stop being 476 AD. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, and every one of those is different, right? So in a sense, every time an emperor comes on, they reset. There is set expectations and so on. For the people living in the provinces, whether it's Baetica in Spain or Achaia in Greece or eventually Britain, uh, they just know, they look at the coins and say, oh, there is there is the new emperor. Um, oh, look at that. So, for example, here, here's the denarius of, 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 of Tiberius, right? And I keep that there because this enables me to focus on, that's the man I'm writing about, just there. That was in circulation at the time I'm writing mm-hmm. about. And I look at that face and try to understand this man. Um, and I don't see a madman or a intellectually uh, flawed individual. What I see is a man. Um, who has slightly big bug eyes and, and, and a very pronounced nose, and, and he's clean-shaven. And then I have all these books I read, which give me different perspectives on how he is. So out of that mountain 
of perceptions and insights and events and so on, sometimes the stories are corroborated. One person will echo the story. Sometimes they echo the story, but leave bits out or they'll embellish it in some way. And I, and I, one of the things I did in my, my chapter is try and understand this process. So I actually compared, for example, the first days that Tiberius addresses the Senate. And if you compare Tacitus, Suetonius, Cassius Dio, and Velis Paterculus, they tell the same event in quite different ways. I mean, the one thing that comes over is the fact that when Tiberius comes in, it's under the the time period of a funeral, right? I mean, so so Augustus Mm. is dead. He's been there for 40-something years. He was 75, I think, when he died. There were whole generations who knew nobody else done that. They didn't know Julius, they only knew Augustus. So it's like me, for example, with the Queen of England recently. She was the only queen I ever knew. The only queen I ever will know. And the, the net result of all of this is that people did not know what to expect. And, and he, from everything I can see, is, is reluctant. He didn't want to be where he was. And his first acts, he, he apparently turns up with Praetorian guards. He's smart enough to realize that you've got to keep the guards on side because there had been assassination attempts on Augustus, even when he was alive. So there was a reasonable chance of that happening with this new guy. And some senators pick on this immediately. He hasn't been chosen and and blessed by the Senate yet, and here here he is with a Praetorian Guard cohort. Well, look at this. Presumption. Autocracy. So there are elements of that, and there are other elements where he basically is very humble and says, you know, that we we honour the name of Augustus, and, uh, you know, how are we going to proceed with this? And here's, here's my... Here's my modus operandi. You know, you're the Senate. I'm looking for you to be the Senate. Do what you used to do. I mean, I'm going to be here and I'll be consul and I'll do whatever you do, but you're the Senate. You're kind of in charge now. And what's very interesting is the way when you see uh, over the years afterwards is that Hyperus seems to do that. He, he, he allows the Senate to be critical of him. And he doesn't, he doesn't get upset by that. He basically says, in a democracy, he doesn't use that word, but in a democracy, there is free speech, and I like free speech. I, I, I'm, I'm big old and ugly enough to be able to take that. And then there's turning points in, in the way that Tacitus describes it, where he seems to sort of get more paranoid about things. And uh, there are these treason trials. And a treason, in this case, is maestas in, in the Roman, uh, in Latin. I was going to say in the Roman language, in, in Latin which really means um, a, a sort of smear against the dignity of the Roman people. It's, it's a very strange way of looking at it, but the Romans have a very inflated version of their, themselves. And someone comes along and badmouths the Roman people, and they, they tend to look at that as being something you need to be punished for. I mean, you know, we're great people. The gods love us. Why would, why would you be negative? So these trials of maestas start to come into uh, the, 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 the way he runs things with increasing frequency. Now, people then look at those, particularly Tacitus, and say, see, this is the mark of a tyrant, tyrannos, right? This is, this, is what, this is what a bad-minded man does when he's got power. But then you can look at it another way. I mean, as I've gone through my chronology, is actually, yes, there may be 10 or 15 of these cases, but let's not forget that the Senate was something like 300 people or something, and what, what he was doing is effectively getting a body of people who've been very used to, you know, r- running roughshod sometimes over the rules, sometimes fleecing their, uh, their, their citizens in the provinces and, and, and doing all sorts of corrupt things. 
he stood to bring these people to account. And the Senate didn't like that in some cases because they had a nice little number going. And along comes this guy, who, by the way, isn't elected, just, just appears and is now taking over control. So there's, a, there's another way you can look at it. And, and, and my way of looking at letting the evidence drive me to my conclusions is I, I think it tells you that the historians took a view about him because as far as they were concerned, they clipped their ability to do what they did. In Tiberius's way of doing things, they needed to be more disciplined and, and basically stick to their job descriptions and do their job and run the provinces properly. And some of them didn't do that. Some of them did. The result of which, by the way, where Augustus would change the governors, the legati, uh, proprietor in his every three years. In Tiberius's case, he'd let them run five, six, seven, eight. The, the governor of Germany was there for decades. And his way of looking at probably is, well, you know how to run the show. You've been there. You, you seem trustworthy. I'm just going to let you carry on. Do you want to carry on? Yes, Caesar. Then carry on. So you can see there's a different management style. And maybe some of the Senate didn't like this new management style. And when you get to the likes of Tacitus and certainly Cassius Dio, um, that's a reason why they would have a dig at him. And then there's a certain point at which this is the, this is maybe more of a turning point in terms of Tiberius's approach. Um, he is a great one for delegating. And as you said, he's a soldier. And as a commander, you need to be able to delegate. We agree the admission. I'm going to give it to my my generals and to their centurions, and they're just going to do the job, right? We've agreed a battle plan. Make the battle plan happen. And if you have to change it, you know the mission. Just make achieve the mission. And I think this is how Tiberius approached his role of running the Roman Empire. And he then becomes great friends with Sejanus, Sejanus, to uh, English people, who will always think of him as Patrick Stewart in I, Claudius, um, he played that role marvelously, absolutely marvelously. But what people forget, in part because of Janus on TV, you get the impression, because don't forget, the whole of the period covered by um, I Claudius is something around about 20 BC to, uh, what would it be, 54 AD? Well, it's in 12 episodes, right? And, and not all episodes are the same number of years covered. So you would get the impression that Sejanus was there for for like two years, created all this terrible uh, pain and suffering, and gone away. No, he had a fifteen year relationship with Tiberius, um, and and in that time, Tiberius was an equestrian, so he could not be uh, he couldn't raise very high in the ranks of Roman politics, being an equestrian, but he could be rewarded well in terms of what roles and responsibilities in the military do. He becomes the uh, the uh, Praefectus Praetorio, which is to say he becomes the commander of the Praetorian Guard, Praetorian Guard, which puts him in a very interesting position. And more and more and more, he is able to regulate what Tiberius sees and who he sees. Every morning in the Roman household of a, a, a wealthy man, there would be a thing called Salutatio. And the followers of that man would turn up at the door and they would go in to greet the man and People would take a careful note. Oh, there's there's a lot of followers at that man's house. He has lots of prestige and so on. Well, he would do that for Tiberius. So if you went to the salutatio of Tiberius, every Roman citizen was basically his client. You know, he was he was the patron of the whole Roman Empire. But actually, if you actually wanted to get to see Tiberius, you had to go through Sejanus, and he would use that power more and more. And then when finally, when Tiberius takes the decision to leave Rome, 
and to go to Capri, uh, he does so knowing that he's got his man running the affairs. The Senate is doing its duty. The system works. There are no wars by and large. People are pretty prosperous and at peace. He can go do his stargazing. He can go do his philosophizing and all this sort of thing. And he he had actually chosen Capri partly because it was difficult to get to. Once you actually arrive, there's only like one or two places you can land on it. It's compact, but big enough to have lots of vistas. From where you see on, I think it's the northern coast, you can look all the way through across to Cumae and all the way to Mycenaeum. You can have the Roman fleet at Mycenaeum send food and messages every day, any time of day you want. They'll just they'll just bring another delivery. Um, from my from Capri, he can take a boat and go anywhere within the empire within reasonable uh, time by sea or by coast. And he can do so knowing that Rome is working. The people are at peace. There's the, why, why would you not effectively take an extended vacation? Because it works. And you see over time the suggestion that Sejanus begins to abuse his position as power. There's the there's the um, uh, the, the relationship he has with Livilla, um, and the killing of Tiberius's natural son, who's Drusus the Younger, by poison, which he doesn't find out about until much later. And um, th- there seems to be this suggestion. Sejanus is, is, is angling to become more and more and more powerful. He's already very powerful. And at a certain point, um, Augustus, is, uh, uh, be his uh, niece, I think, um, Antonia, who is the mother of um, Tiberius, and, uh, of, of um, Germanicus, I'm sorry. I'm metal, but there's so many, this is the trouble with Roman history, there's so many people. Um, takes it upon herself as as basically the the Roman matron, the one whose reputation is tarnished free. She is the widow of Drusus, and therefore someone that Tiberius would respect. She brings news that this is the truth of what's going on with Sejanus in Rome. And uh, if you've read the stories, for example, in Tacitus, which read like a thriller, um, rather than basically sending out a bunch of people to arrest him, they set Sejanus up for an extraordinary fall. And arrangements are made where um, his position will be changed. They create the impression in Sejanus that he's going to be like consul. He's going to, or going to be someone really, really super important. And in fact, what they then do is get the commander of the Night Watch, the, the Giles, to effectively become the linchpin of a, a, um, a military restoration effort. So Sejanus is invited to go to the, well, effectively a meeting of the Senate, not in the Senate hall, but in a temple, as I remember. And a speech is read out in the name of the Emperor Tiberius, and he uses words like, um, this man I trusted as my friend, and it does come to my attention that he has abused that friendship. And Sejanus is standing there, and then people realize... Oh, this isn't like we were told it was going to be. And in the meantime, the guards on the outside have been switched out for the guy called Macro. Macro is now going to take over. And they make an arrest. They arrest Sejanus. He uh, has a horrible end. Uh, I think it's thrown down the top here in Rock. Um, his, his, his wife is, uh, I think, um, you know, subject to all sorts of horror, horrific things. Um, his daughter is raped by the soldiers because they're not allowed to kill 
the Virgin, so there's a horrible scene that goes with that. And Tiberius effectively once again restores his grip. And the, the question that historians have is that did Tiberius know that that was what was happening and was basically allowing it to happen? He just basically, well, okay, if my guy's going to run, that's the way my guy runs the show. Or was he genuinely shocked? I don't yet have an opinion. Um, I can imagine the sense of betrayal that he would feel. Because if you look through his life, we haven't talked about, for example, his private life yet. We're going to get to it now. Where he married the daughter of Marcus Agrippa. We come back to Marcus Agrippa again, don't we? Whose name was uh, Wipsania Agrippina. Again, against Wipsania. Right? They're, all, they're all through the Roman family. And um, when Agrippa dies in 12, she's now a widow. A year later, Augustus says, um, well, my daughter needs a, needs a husband. You, Tiberius, are going to marry my daughter. And they'd had, maybe there's insinuations that they had relationships in their younger years. Uh, in this situation, though, he's already married to Whipsania Agrippina, and he's told you have to divorce her. And he really doesn't want to do this, and eventually he has to succumb, Augustus is telling him to. Marriages are not always for love in Roman times, they're done for politics and money and friendships and connections. Um, and this, this, this really rips him apart. I mean, this is a lady that he genuinely loves, that um, being separated from, he then tries to keep seeing her and news gets to uh, the Palatium, the palace on the, on, on the Palatine Hill, that he's married to Julia, but he's still seeing his ex-wife. And he's basically told him, though, in certain terms, you will not see her again ever. And this, this kind of breaks him. So you can imagine this has happened. That's in 1211, going into maybe 10 BC. In 9 BC, his brother Drusus dies in Germany. I told you about that earlier. Um, then he has this escape to Rhodes. Uh, in the meantime, he's been fighting battles and wars and so on. And then as we go through, he fights even more battles and whatever. Uh, we, we talked in the previous uh, situation where there are you know, other members of the family who are really um, causing him issues. For example, the uh, the widow of Germanicus, they have a, they have a big uh, guffuffle in that relationship, of course, he loses Germanicus, and there's insinuations of a plot there as well. We covered that in the last one. Uh, and then to be betrayed by someone that he trusted. I mean, you can see that this might affect you. And now he's into his 60s. So I think the other thing that, that when you write a biography, it's, it's very hard to remember that people change in their lifetime, right? So a, a young ideal republic for the Republic Roman, can go through all of that life, suffer personal loss, see terrible things happen in front of you, be attacked all the time. And we see this with politicians in our own life, right? I mean, you can't expect them to be the same people all the time throughout their lives. I mean, there'll be a nugget of somebody, and sometimes people can turn nasty. And I still don't know, even after having done all this research, I have to come to a sort of like a conclusion at some point, is... Could he have been a person that in ensconced in Capri with 12 villas, the famous being um, the Villa Jovis, supposedly named after Jove, uh, King of the Gods, um, which was this extraordinary, maybe two or three, or maybe five-story building with these great big cisterns to collect rainwater, because not much natural water, fresh water on Capri. But they built, basically, in my view, they built a military praetorium that the, the commander's house, right on the edge of a cliff, with spectacular views going right across the bay of Naples, so he could see Mycenae, he could see 
Akumai and everything in between, uh, he could see ships coming and so on. And there was, an, there was a platform there for stargazing. He could do astronomy charts and things with Drusillus that we mentioned earlier. Probably a new um, place of murder senators. Uh, well, what's interesting is he took a bunch of people with him. And I don't know. Can you imagine? I, I don't know if you've ever been to the Getty Villa. Oops, in... I accidentally pushed you over the cliff. <laughs> yeah, but see, again, we only have people like Suetonius who tell us those stories. And it, it, it's very hard to know whether are these... Because you didn't get invited there, right? The rumor mill can come up with stories. So I don't know whether he had the sort of sexual parties that uh, are alleged. I mean, I guess it can it right bang up to date news as of today, was it 3rd or so of October, is that the former CEO and his partner are now embroiled in uh, a legal action because when he was in charge of Abercrombie and Fitch, that he is alleged to have had effectively orgies with models, male models that are brought in and paid $2,500 to perform acts of sex for their entertainment. And the the CEO who was alleged to be doing all this is saying, it's all a made up story. It's not true. Well, the court, when this happens, we'll, we'll find out what happens. There are a couple of people being interviewed on the BBC. I say this because... These people were wealthy. They were very powerful because they ran a big company. They had, they could do lots of things, and they could seem to promise cute, beautiful young men. This is where your modeling career starts, and all you have to do is give me a blowjob, right? So, if, if that's possible, is it possible that a Tiberius could do that because he's the most powerful man in the world, or at least the world they know? And I don't know. And I think it, that there is a risk that we can do too much revisionism. We can say it seems very unlikely, but based on what? Well, my reading. Yep, yeah, that's OK. But I think you also have to say, well, and this is where Mary Beard uh, sort of say, sometimes it doesn't even matter whether it happened or not. The fact that Romans themselves thought it happened is itself useful to know is a fact, because that was something that gave them um, a, a An impression it gave them um, an image of the man who was supposedly their their leader. And so, so I don't know. I the Romans had a different attitude to sex than we do today, or certainly uh, Americans. Um, so it's quite possible that they were parties. Was he a big fan of those? I don't know. I, I've read that in fact he was a great uh, lover of what you might call was tableau and sort of like set dramas. So he'd have like Greek plays performed, but they would build these elaborate stage sets and, you know, you could have cupids and gods and so on. And maybe they did swim around because this is all part of this fabulous production and people coming back said, oh yeah, and they had little boys swimming around in the swimming pool. And then this gets exaggerated into something that it wasn't. Hmm. Um, the hand with the feather other... story. The what, sorry? The hand with the feather story, the one that loses one feather and then it goes on and on and how this other right. feathers do. Yes. So, so we don't know. We really don't know. Um, the fact that this happens at the same time when there are people beginning to suggest the, ty- the tyranny of Tiberius. So, mm-hmm. Again, the people who are writing the stories are the senators who are themselves under the microscope, and some of them are being hauled into court for treason. 
Um, and in his view, it's because they're doing things like they're denigrating the memory of Augustus. And the, the way he might be looking at it is, I can only be the princeps. I can only be the emperor. If we all agree that the guy before me was legitimately the emperor and the laws that he has, we regard those and we follow those rules. Because if we start saying Augustus was a bad guy, you start to undermine the legitimacy and the whole thing starts to creak a little bit. And And, and if nothing else, Tiberius was ultimately the follower of the command. And, and I, another way I've looked at it is this, is that in his last moments, I, I can imagine that uh, Augustus would have basically said to Tiberius, this is going to be your show. Don't F it up. Right. And and Tiberius mm-hmm. being a soldier, being given the last order by his commander in chief, you can almost imagine so I'll take my orders and I'll do them to the best of my ability. Because what's amazing is after the incident with Sejanus, um, he goes on to rule some more, right? He 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 goes on till 37. Um, and I looked at it here, so for example, if you think about it, um, so when he came to power as the emperor, he was 56. He reigned for 23 years. He was 77 when he died. Hmm. Right? Interesting enough, Augustus was 36 when he became what we become emperor. And people, and call, people call Joe Biden old. Yeah, well, when, when Augustus died, he was 75. Mm. Right now, when you read Cassius Dio, he was so old, he could hardly see. And they would actually, when in the Senate, you know, they would read letters out loud to him or he would, someone else had to read them out for him because he couldn't. He was partly deaf. He couldn't partly see. He was an old man, right? Mm. Except that an old man of 75 in the Roman era might look a little bit different to somebody of our own age, possibly. But but look at that. So so he reigns, Augustus reigns for 41 years, Tiberius reigns for 23. Augustus was the longest reigning Roman emperor. And Tiberius is like number two or three. So despite all the sort of suggestions that he was bad, that somehow or other he was corrupt, that he was doing things in the privacy of his own swimming pool that were detestable in many people's eyes... Well, here's the here's the, here's the, the bottom line. When he died, and we can talk about how he died in a minute, um, the empire was at peace. The empire was prosperous. There had been some wars, and they were in different geographies to, to deal with specific problems, like Atakfarinas, for example, in North Africa. But by and large, it worked. There was no war with Parthia, for example. Um, you know, people were living their lives, and in some regards, some people would think of it as being rather boring. Which leads me to talk about the Christian historians. So people have heard of people like uh, uh, Eusebius and there are other people, Tertullian and so on. When you read the Christian histories, and they're written in the 400s, 500s, 600s, they look at Tiberius very differently. They, they see him as being the person on the one level under whom the Jesus Christ that they put the center of, of their mm. world and their religious beliefs Without Tiberius, none of that could have happened. So the first thing is they say Jesus and Tiberius are part of the same story. And there's another dimension. There there was a sort of story that developed where Tiberius was presented the option, would you please make Jesus of Nazareth a god comparable to the Olympian gods? And do you know what the Christian historians say? He supported the idea. And they tell the story that it was the Senate basically says, no way in heavens we're going to ever have this 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 Jew from Judea ever going to be one of our gods. But the Christian historians say that Tiberius 
voted for it, argued for it. And that's very interesting because um, the, the other historians by this time, and I, I just read recently a letter of Julian, so-called the apostate, to another Roman where he, he is by this time, we're talking 300s AD, is that the idea that Tiberius is a tyrant had become basically the storyline. That was the narrative by then, within, within two, and a half, uh, two and a half centuries after Tiberius's death. That's what people thought of Tiberius. He was not made a god, for example. Augustus was made a god. Claudius was made a god. Um, he was not thought as being as bad as Caligula. So that says something, I suppose. Um, the fact that many people after his death, that there were emperors in and, and Caesars, there were Caesars and Augustuses in the later empire who took the name Tiberius. There were, there were Byzantine emperors called Tiberius. So the name was not blemished. So I, I look at all these things and I and I try to work out you know what what was the pivotal point and it's very hard and I think it comes back down to Tacitus primarily, who had decided in his story that he had to be able to say Augustus, well okay we just have to accept Augustus Tiberius though he could have said we're going back to the old system and he tried it for a little bit and then he got power hungry and then he started having treason mm. trials and then Germanicus who was the hope for the empire and he got poisoned. You know, we, we talked about that, and you know my view on that. I don't think he was. Um, you can see it's 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 the downfall of a man corrupted by power, and mm. and, and and all the other ones are even worse after him. Mm. And and it makes a great story, but I don't think it's history. I don't think it's the truth. But it's very hard when that's the really one of only two or three places that tell you the history. Right. Uh, and and that is our dilemma as ancient historians. Mm. And I, I would, I think we're going to end with Caligula comic power instead of Caligula's reign. But let's talk about how, you mentioned Germanicus, and I want to talk about him and Caligula's relationship and how Caligula, Caligula came to Calcutta, whereas his, the rest of his family were either exiled or murdered. So that's how talk about Caligula's upbringing and how he came to gain the nickname Little Boots, as Caligula means. Yeah. So interesting enough, um, Caligula is one of those unusual people at this point because Augustus was a soldier, Tiberius was a soldier, Caius Caligula had never been in the army. He'd worn the army uniform as a kid, hence Caligula, little boot, bootykins, as Mary Beard sometimes calls him. Um, but the point is, he never actually served as a soldier, as a commander. So that that makes him different, a different kind of Caesar at this point. Um, in his young years, when he was a, a young teenager, he spent time on Capri with Tiberius. Um, and th th there are some people that would suggest, well, if those things were, the, the, the bad things were really going on in Capri, he was witness, mm. maybe an active participant in all of those things. Mm. On, the other, on the other hand, if he's just having debates about philosophy and having performances, Greek plays, you know, he may play, that, would, that would account for why he was fascinated by Greek myths and like theatre and shows and stuff of his own kind. And if both happened, that explains a lot about Caligula, I suppose. So the, the Caligula is involved um, in a very personal way with Tiberius. And there seems to be a suggestion that, that he was expecting to become the successor and, and was rather keen to be the successor as fast as possible. And Tiberius needed to die. And in fact, it's interesting how in, in the plays in France, during the 18th and 19th century, there were there were many many 
plays written about Tiberius in Capri. It was partly as a result of the, the, the reaction to the French Revolution and the kings they had and how those kings weren't really functioning. They looked at Tiberius as a very clever way of saying, look, this man is like the king of France. You know, look at the corruption. Um, and, 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 and along comes this poor, corrupted kid, you know, little Caius Caligula. Um, but he's the great hope. But actually what he does, he arranges the guy that took over from Sejanus, Macro, is the guy he enlists on one of his many, many visits to uh, Capri to basically bump him off. There are three different stories about the death of Tiberius. And one of them is that he was smothered uh, with a pillow on his bed. He was crying. He was thought to be dying and he was basically left. He was calling for food and nobody responded to him. And in the end, um, he, he seems to have been smothered by by a Praetorian guard, which was rather cruel because the whole point of the Praetorian guard was to protect the emperor. So there was somebody uh, who, who'd broken that vow. So now we find that Caius Caligula on, on Capri is the princess, number three in in the lineup, if you will. And as the son of Germanicus, when he returns to the mainland, people are thrilled because they, they were weary of this sort of dull, absent Emperor Tiberius. Here is this supposedly pretty good looking, I mean, he seems to have dark, dark, slightly curly hair. He was a bit hairy, was, 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 was uh, Caligula. Not terribly good looking. Um, he had a bit of a bald spot developing. He was a bit, bit freaked out by some of his physical appearance. Um, but the point was, he was the inheritor of the reputation of Germanicus, the, the one that the, the Roman public adored and were devastated by his death. So here's the young Germanicus reborn to reinvigorate the state after Old Odyssey, so 23 years of Tiberius. So it was a, a, a moment of transformation and excitement. And in the first couple of years, it seems to work. He's, he's very popular with people. Um, that, that they ha His arrival in Rome is spectacular. He comes on a barge at the Tiber and everyone looks at this. And, and, and it's just, just a, a sort of Hollywoodization by the Romans <laughs> of, of, of what uh, rule as an emperor is supposed to look like. And... Problems start really in the way that the Senate, which had got used to working with Tiberius, more and more being obsequious and more and more whatever the emperor wants, we'll just we'll just rubber stamp it. Um, the Senate sort of works with Caligula that way, but he has some he has some personality issues. We, we don't quite know um, whether he had a mental breakdown at some point. There's a letter Philo, uh, the Jew, came from Judea to meet as an embassy with the Emperor Caligula. And he he writes this in, in one, one of the accounts where um, Caligula was actually having his palace redecorated and they were putting gemstones in the walls and things like this. And the Jewish delegation is quite frankly quaking in its sandals. It doesn't really quite know what to expect. And it's introduced, Philo is introduced, and the suggestion is that uh, Caligula sort of wrapped up in his picket. No, 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 I, I want the blue ones, not the red, no, the green ones. Let's have the green ones. And um, Caesar, the delegation from, from Jerusalem is here, or Caesar, um, and, oh, they're Jews. Are. You people don't like pork, do you? And they say, no, Caesar. Well, it's not a very good meat anyway, is it? Ha, ha, ha. You know, this is the kind of, this is a, a genuine story that survives. And um, they, they complete their business and off they go. But that's a little tiny window into the world of Caligula. He was obsessed by decorations, the look of things. 
not really the minutiae of running an empire because other people do that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And you've got to remember that where Tiberius had spent an entire lifetime learning to govern, to be a soldier, to be a diplomat, Caligula hadn't had any of that. He grew up on Capri, basically, watching gradually members of his family disappear. And you mentioned that earlier. Um, in in, in um, Germanicus, I tried to explain the virtual extinction of the family of Germanicus. And it was it was it's confusing as to whether that was all orchestrated by Tiberius. And the, 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 the nub of it was really the falling out between Agrippina, Germanicus's wife, as the sister-in-law of Tiberius. They just had a, a really combative relationship. And the casualties in this were her sons, uh, who were uh, um, Drusus, uh, I think it was Tiberius there, but, but Caligula was the only one basically to survive out of that. And, you know, if, if you read some accounts, you can imagine that a little boy is terrified that he might be the next one to be bumped off. So, you know, all these things play into this growing up story. So now as emperor, he hasn't had any of the training which his two predecessors had. And I'm sorry for interrupting you there, but I think we're going to run it up here because I want to talk about more about Caligula in the next episode. And of okay. course, closer into his upbringing as well, as you mentioned very briefly here, but... Uh, so this is as again this is not a two parter because the amount of things we have to talk about I feel like it's necessary to do this in two parts as well and then, of course that we will talk more about Caligula, Claudius, and Nero in the next episode. But of course before we go and end this episode, do you have any links you want me to put in the description or of course where can people buy your two books? John, uh, holding up here. If you have any links to open to share in the description, or you know where, yeah, where can people buy your oh, books? Uh, well, the, the books are available everywhere. So you could you can go to a Waterstones website, you can go to Amazon, you can go to uh, you know Barnes and Noble in the United States, uh, Chapters in Canada, and just put my name Lindsay Powell, and you'll see what my books are there. Um, Pen and Sword do a bang up job for me, so you can go to the Pen and Sword uh, website, and these people will sell you. Now most of my books are available at hardback, paperback, and Kindle or EPUB versions, so no excuse, go buy them. Knock yourself out. <laughs> no, no, Adam, this has been about that age. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and as I mentioned in the beginning, please write a review, and I will try to, if I find it, to read it out on the podcast for you. And I hope you liked this episode. Please rate us five stars on Spotify. If you listen there, if you are on YouTube, please like, share, and subscribe. But this has been with that age 12. We will continue our story of Julio Claudians next week. And thank you for listening and have a good day.